Good morning. My name is David White. I'm the associate pastor here. I want to give a special welcome again to anybody who's visiting with us for the first time. Really glad that you've joined us this morning. We are in the book of Philippians. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 3. That's page 981 in your pew Bibles. If you're using those, I would invite you to open a paper Bible because uh, we're going to be looking at, at the passage uh, before and after. So uh, page 981 in the pew Bible. Uh, we focused a lot. We're going to be reading verses 17 to 21. Last week's sermon was 17 to 19, so this week we're really just focusing in on 20 and 21. What many scholars say is the climax of the book of Philippians. So it is a, it is a monster passage we have today. But I want to start off asking you, how many have you have read a kind of postmodern dystopian novel? Anyone? Let's get some hands out here. Um, an unsatisfying ending. Can I get an amen? I mean, tragedies have been around forever, right? There's Greek tragedies. But it seems like most of the fiction written now, everything just falls apart. Relationships end. Everything's broken. The world's broken. Um, why is it unsatisfying? The end of the story really matters. And so I'd point you to a great work like like Oliver Twist, Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist, where you know his humor certainly helps carry the story along through some of the darker moments, but there's an awareness that the end of this book, Dickens is going to pull it together. It's going to be okay. We need stories that point us to the ultimate story. And the Philippians really needed that. We saw earlier in, uh, towards the end of Philippians 1, if you have your Bible open, that he's saying um, there is, the, they have been granted, it's been granted to you in verse 29 of chapter 1 that you for the sake of Christ should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You're engaged in the same kind of conflict that you saw I had, that you know that I still have. If you're not familiar with the book of Philippians, Paul is writing to them from prison, chained to a Roman centurion 24-7. And he's writing to them saying, I know that you too are suffering. Let me tell you the end of the story. Because the end of the story carries you through those middle parts that are painful and difficult. And it's very important for us today to make sure we know the right end of the story because lots of people are confused. In fact, I won't name and shame any, but many of our hymns actually have the wrong ending, which is why I asked Dave to dust off for all the saints because all the saints captures so beautifully those two of the verses we sang. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors cometh rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise the blessed. This is echoing what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 23, that he longs to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, Dana mentioned in his prayer, and Rick mentioned, uh, we actually lost in the PCA three saints this week. Harry Reeder, some of you might, might recognize in the upper picture, and of course, Tim Keller, and a dear friend of mine, Steve Smallman, who, who I've known for many years, served with at the Presbytery, in the Philadelphia Presbytery for many years, passed on Sunday. 
And so here, three, three men have, have experienced his glorious commencement, the beginning, and that's where they are. With Jesus, that is far better. But this is what we all need to realize. That's not the end of the story. Have they been whisked away to heaven? And what does that mean? We don't exactly know. The Bible's not very clear. But I love how, for all the saints, captures it. For lo, there breaks, so they've gone, to, they've gone to paradise the blessed, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Alleluia. That's the end of the story. Everyone is raised to life again, physically, bodily, in a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus himself comes and reigns physically in our midst. Um, now, some of you might be saying, okay, this is still kind of pie in the sky, but the reality is the end of the story and your understanding of the end of the story is incredibly important for actually how you live today. It will inform the decisions that you make today. The man who wrote the hymn for all the saints, his name is William Washam Howe. By the way, always refer to people who are in Christ in the present tense even after they've passed. Because he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, not the dead. Um, so William Washam Howe was called on his time on earth the poor man's bishop and the children's Bishop, because he was ministering at the end of the 19th century, the emergence of the Industrial Revolution. He ministered in the slums in London. He cared for the factory workers that would, were in what could only be called Dickensian conditions in those early years. He was known as the man who killed, cared for children, the man who cared for the poor, because the implications of his belief in Jesus returning to heal this world were lived out in his life. If you are here and you're investigating the Christian faith, you're visiting with us today, I'm really glad that you're here. And it's important for you, too, to know the end of the Christian story. Because it's not, as you've seen in cartoons, a bunch of spirits floating around in the clouds with harps. What the Bible anticipates is a physical existence in a gloriously restored cosmos. And this is something that actually separates Christianity from many other faiths. It is celebrating the goodness of the creator God who made this world, and although it is filled with imperfections right now. The anticipation is the removal of those imperfections of which death is the greatest enemy. So with all those things in mind, please join me in reading Philippians 3. We're going to read 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. I have a simple outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're going to look at three points. Understanding citizenship, awaiting the deliverer, and finally knowing resurrection power. So in order to have a right understanding of citizenship, I need to remind you, we've talked about this a little bit weeks ago, the history of Philippi. After the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC by Cassius and Brutus, bear with me if you hate history, it'll be short. After, after Caesar, uh, um, Julius Caesar's assassination in 44, civil war engulfed the Roman world for two years. Antony and Octavian, who became Augustus Caesar, finally had victory over the armies of Cassius and Brutus in 42 BC. In Philippi, the decisive battle was fought just outside of Philippi. Now suddenly, these victorious generals are left with thousands of soldiers who have nothing left to do. They've defeated all their enemies. And the last things these generals want is for these thousands of soldiers to come back to Rome, drinking, carousing, looking for a good time. So they said, oh, we'll make Philippi a colony. We'll give them land all around Philippi, and they'll stay here. And we'll have an outpost for Rome in northern Greece. That's the history of Philippi becoming a Roman colony. They conferred citizenship on every resident. So by the time Paul arrives, now we're about a century later. You've got the descendants of all those original colonists. It's still a military colony, so you have soldiers, active duty soldiers who are living there. You have veterans from the legions that have settled there after their service. There was tremendous civic pride in Philippi to be a Roman colony. So as we think about citizen of heaven, you first need to understand, what does it mean to be a Roman citizen? Now, unlike the US, in 1968, the 14th Amendment was adopted, and it confers citizenship on anyone born within our territories. That's not how it worked in Rome. Citizenship was expensive. It was out of reach from most of the population. So it was a big deal for people. In Philippi, it meant that they ordered their lives. They were proud of being Roman citizens. They ordered their lives about around how things were done in Rome. That included having temples devoted to the Caesars, to Augustus and to Claudius. It also meant that they were not looking forward to moving away from Philippi and living there. Citizenship actually worked the other way around. As I already mentioned, the emperors didn't want these people coming back. Rome was already overcrowded. It was underemployed. They didn't need more people. And this is what you need to realize, because I think colonization rightly has a bad name, but we think of it only through a Western 18th, 19th century lens. Okay, so we've got to do a little bit of work here, because Roman colonization was different. The goal was not to just exploit natural resources around the world and enrich the the home nation. It was rather extend, listen to this, 
Roman citizenship in the colony of Philippi was about extending the power and influence of Rome, extending the power and influence of the mother city in northern Greece. Do you see? That's what he means when he says that we are citizens of heaven. He's saying our role is to extend the culture and the rule of our mother city, where we are right now. He's redirecting how the Philippians understood their citizenship. It's not there. It's here, and you do now do that here. You extend the rule. Um, It's the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. And and let me just challenge you a little bit here. I realize some of you are going to be a little shocked, okay? Just as the Philippians had no intention of going away to live in Rome, the final destination for the Christian is to not be whisked off to heaven somewhere. When is the last time you read Revelation 21 or 22? That's the end of the story. It is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. It describes this 1,400-mile cube. That's like the distance from Philly to Dallas. 1,400-mile cube of a city descending down. And the declaration is, now the dwelling of God is with men. Not floating in the clouds somewhere, but this glorious physical existence because God the creator is a good God and he doesn't want to just rubbish everything he's made, but he's going to make it perfect and transformed. We'll get to more of that in a moment. What difference does it make to you? Where you live. If you own a rental property and you need to update the kitchen... You are not going to pay woodworkers to come in and build you custom cabinetry. You don't live there. It's just an income stream. You're going to Home Depot, you're getting a bunch of cabinets and boxes, and you're throwing them up there. Amen? But in your house, you're going to hire those guys to build you the custom cabinetry because you live there. You're invested in that place. It matters to you and to how you live. Let me, let me apply this a couple other ways. Um, that's why marriage is a lifelong commitment. We were just talking about this in the math class in the last hour. It's hard work. The promises need to keep you rooted because otherwise people would want to bolt. You might remember when Jesus taught about his disciples about marriage, they said, oh my goodness, if you can't get out, it's better not to get married. (laughs) They were honest at least. (laughs) He asks for a lifelong commitment because he knows that's what it takes. I poignantly remember in the early years of marriage to my late wife, uh, we were having a conflict about something. I can't, you know, gloriously, I can't remember what it is, but I remember exactly where I was. I was on my commute to work. I was in traffic. I was on Old York Road in Jenkintown, and I was crying out to the Lord, I don't want to deal with this. And the Holy Spirit just impressed on my heart. I've warned you before, I'm a Presbycostal. <laughs> if you don't deal with this, you'll always deal with it. Yeah. 
Because it's a lifelong commitment. That's by design because you care about the things that you're invested in. That's why um, having the long view is so important for us. We need the long view. That affects how we do marriage. It affects parenting. These things are for the rest of your life. That's why joining a church is important. At a moment of sanity, making a commitment. I want to be obligated to you brothers and sisters, so if I ever go crazy and start going off the rails, you will chase me down. And as I said, being a citizen of heaven on earth, um, knowing the right end of the story, it is the merging of heaven and earth, these things coming together, God's space, our space, renewed together. That's what enables us to dig in here and invest in the long term. This is one of the things that was a big deal for Tim Keller. That's why he went to the urban centers of this world seeking to bring renewal. If you have this view, if you have the right end of the story, you're not going to see cultural renewal as a waste of time. You're going to understand the importance of overturning the effects of the curse in this world. Fighting poverty, fighting food insecurity. This is not greasing the wheels of a machine that's going off the cliff. That might be the view you're tempted to have if you think, oh, this world's all going to pot anyway and we're going to whisk off somewhere. Well, then why care for the poor? Why help those who are disadvantaged? You're just greasing the wheels and the machine going off the cliff. No, we work in this world to bring the influence, the rule of heaven to earth. Because we care deeply about the ethics of heaven. And we want to see it lived out here. Now, Jesus came to earth declaring that the kingdom had arrived... This included forgiveness of sins. This includes his death on the cross, ultimately to pay the penalty for all of that. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But what I want you to think about right now is as he was declaring the kingdom of come, had come, what was he doing? He was going around healing people. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing. He's overturning all the ways the world is broken. He's feeding the hungry. Because he was bringing heaven to earth the way things are supposed to be. Uh, we prayed for Mike, uh, Dr. Matika, leaving and, and heading uh, to Malawi today. One of the reasons why we're excited uh, about Pomoza International and partnering with them is because they are both proclaiming the gospel, which we care deeply about. We care that people come to know Jesus and they're ultimately delivered from sin and death. But at the same time, they're helping people with occupational training and food security and more holistically entering into the Zoe community, addressing the very real world problems they're facing. Uh, word indeed, the answer is always yes. It's not one or the other. Um, now, all that said, I realize it is always going to be impartial and incomplete until Jesus returns because that is the end of the story. We need the king to come back. So we are awaiting the deliverer. That's our second point. That's another rendering of the word soter that is savior in the, in the, the English Bible in front of you. Um, and if you'll have noticed, Paul is setting up in verses 17 to 19 and then 20 and 21, he's setting up this us and them scenario. 
So I want you to think about it like this. He's just gotten done describing the enemies of the cross. God's enemies are enemies because we don't want to be led astray. What if Philippi was attacked by barbarians? Well, a little bit like our NATO alliance. You attack one, you attack everybody. Their hope would be maybe the emperor himself would sweep into town with the might of the Roman legions at his back and deliver them from their enemies. Um, What he's been doing, he's just been describing the enemies that they were facing, and just as he reoriented their understanding of citizenship, now he wants to reorient their understanding of what deliverance means. Now, we have to do a little bit of work here because referring culturally to Jesus as Savior and Lord is like very commonplace. In fact, my daughters went to a predominantly Jewish public high school and Jewish kids in the hallway would be mocking Jesus as Savior and Lord, like they would say it jokingly. So it's very culturally um, understood. But what you need to realize is this was a radical statement in the first century. Here is the the pre-inscription. This is from modern-day Western Turkey. Uh, You've got a picture of of, uh, Augustus Caesar there. This inscription hails Caesar as the divine Savior and Lord. It declares his gospel. That's the word that's used. His gospel, the good news that now that the divine Augustus has brought peace to the Roman Empire, all is well. Just as we begin our sporting events singing the Star Spangled Banner, all sporting civic events in Rome began with a declaration of Caesar as Savior and Lord. Do you see what's going on here? Paul is poking in the eye the arrogance of the Roman emperor. Jesus is Lord and Savior. In fact, this is the only place in all of his letters that both of those titles are used, specifically talking about citizenship, what it means for them. It was a political statement that was deeply countercultural to say this about Jesus. So I just want to take a moment. Who is this deliverer? We're given three titles and a name. First of all, as your English Bible records, Savior. I've rendered that deliverer. Uh, Why? Because I think Savior, we, we have a very commonplace understanding. Who is a deliverer? He rescues us from great danger. He delivered us from sin and death. The Bible describes humanity as an oppressed people. And this resonated with the hearts of the Jews. Their history was deliverance as an oppressed people, Israel from Egypt. And of course, to the group that, that Paul is in, in Paul's day, the Jews were still waiting for deliverance, for deliverance from, from their Roman overlords. Uh, Jesus came to defeat the greatest of the threats humanity faces, our enslavement to sin and death. He is Lord. That means this deliverer isn't just a great soldier who can defeat enemies. He's actually the ruler. He's the one who is sovereign over everything. As we looked at a number of weeks ago in Romans 2, 
every knee is going to bow eventually, including Caesar. He's the anointed one. That's what, it, that's what Christ means. It means anointed one. Uh, this was what was done in the Old Testament to prophets and priests and especially to kings. And it's an acknowledgement of the kingship of Jesus, Jesus that he was set aside by God the Father for this role. And finally, he's named Jesus, which from the Hebrew means Yahweh saves. Now, where, where did he get this name? Why was he named this? This is what an angel said to Joseph when he gave him the heads up that Mary was pregnant. He says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. He came to deliver us from sin and death. I want to ask you, if you're here investigating the Christian faith, do you know that you need saving? Do you see the things in your life that aren't right? Christian, are you still aware of how much you need saving? I've been reading recently a, a book by Richard Lovelace named, uh, called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, and in it he talks about our need for continual renewal. How does that work? You need a growing understanding of who God really is. You need to see him in his holiness, in his purity. And you need a right understanding of your own failures, your own sinfulness. But, but over all of this, you need to see Jesus who entered into this world, who took on human flesh, who went to the cross to pay the price for those sins so that as you see the glory of God and as you see the brokenness of your sin, you realize that those things have been covered. That's what brings renewal to us. So how do we begin to understand grace in a way that's transformative? I take my Sabbath during the week, and, and Jennifer and I listen to, to different, we have a worship time as part of that, and recently we, we were listening to a, a sermon by Tim Keller, and he described how grace came home to him in a deeper way when he had gone through a long period of feeling like he was blowing it all over the place, in his home, at Redeemer, he was seeing his failure in his face constantly, and all of a sudden the message he kept preaching every Sunday really hit home. It really must be all of grace. You must really love me. I am so needy of my sin to be covered. It is deeply humbling. How, how do we do this? Be honest with your failings. Face this reality that who you are in your worst moments is really who you are. Don't make excuses. Don't say, well, you know, he or she. Own it. Look in that mirror. See the glory of God and the blood of Christ shed for you. Surrender to him in it. Don't make excuses. Don't blame other people. It's deeply humbling 
But this is how God is exalted and magnified. I just wanted to point you back to a passage we looked at many months ago from James when we were going through our James series. It says in James 4, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see how it holds both of these things together. Being honest about who I am and at the same time holding fast to his promises. If you humble yourself, I will exalt you. Uh, Last thought on this awaiting the Savior. Paul and the apostles believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime, as far as we can tell. And so should we, even though it's been 2,000 years. There's been a lot of unhelpful speculations, um, but this is what is clear from the apostle. He is coming back. He's coming back to set things right. In fact, this Greek word for awaiting is, is getting at the idea of concentrated eagerness, persistence of expectation, with your eye focused, detached from every other object. We're not given a date because he really wants us living every day with an anticipation of meeting Jesus. It could be today. Finally, We're awaiting a savior who's going to bring to fruition all of these promises and and, uh, enable us to know resurrection power. This is the hope that Paul was longing for that we looked at earlier in the chapter, verses 10 and 11 in particular. Um, It's the glorious commencement of the world to come. Now, he says a couple things about this. We've got to move quickly here. Uh, from lowly to glory. What, what's in view with lowly? It's not that our current bodies are worthless or shameful. It's pointing to what you already know if you're over 40. They are transient. They wear down. In fact, I've got this, this uh, faulty sphincter now where I can't eat late at night because otherwise I'm going to get acid squeezed up my throat when I lay down and go to sleep. I can't eat spicy foods, fat foods, all the things I love. Yeah, amen, I'm getting an amen from up front here. That's what it's getting about, our lowly body. It's not that it's shameful, it's that it's transient, it wears, it ages down, it's, it's subject to decay. That's what, that's what he's looking at here. Um, but this world was never intended to be the end of the story. In fact, I would point you to, to Bill Clark's lecture last week in, in the Sunday school hour. He really did a beautiful job talking about this. That's why at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are actually barred from the tree of life because this world is transient. No, 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 no. You're not going to partake of that in this fallen state. But what do you see in Revelation 22? We actually talked about it in our call to worship, Psalm 46. The river of the water of life flowing down the main street of the city. The tree of life is on both sides all the way down this avenue. It's bearing fruit every month and the saints are encouraged, come and eat every day. Because you are now welcomed in the new heavens and the new earth. What do we know about the resurrection body? There is uh, continuity and discontinuity. 
So we see that, that uh, Jesus was physical, right? Thomas, come touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. He eats fish on the beach. He breaks bread in Emmaus. But at the same time, he's radically changed. He's with them one place and then disappears and reappears somewhere else, miles away. He's not recognizable unless he wants you to recognize him. Uh, one of the things I love, he appears through closed doors. And, and I like how C.S. Lewis puts this because I think it breaks away. I think we can hear him appearing through closed doors and we think he's ghostly. C.S. Lewis says, no, 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 he was more solid. How did he get through those doors? It was like a man walking through water. The molecules jumped out of the way for his ultra-physical body to pass through. So his body is changed, and yet there was a similarity. Uh, the most haunting line in John's gospel, the revelation, he meets them on the beach. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Isn't that amazing? They spent three years with him. Nobody asked, who are you? He was changed, but they knew who he was. Um, we get more of a clue for us in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the most extensive discussion, this, this chapter of resurrection in the New Testament. It's saying that what you sow, uh, this is verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Okay, we've got a couple images here quickly that, that we need to look at. Number one, he talks about the idea of a seed. Think about it this way. An acorn is a legitimate representation of what will eventually be an oak tree. That's the description he's giving, this seed. So there's continuity, but radical discontinuity in a full-grown oak. This is an oak tree in Schenectady uh, Central Park up in New York. They're trying to find the biggest oak tree in New York. It has a circumference of 15 feet. It's more than 80 feet high. It came from an acorn. That's the picture he wants you to get. Acorn is you now. That is where you're headed. The next thing I want us to think about um, this whole idea of a natural body and spiritual body, we, we need to get away from the idea that that means ghostly. Okay, when it says natural body, the word there, uh, sukakos, is, is um, like the soul. It's where we get the word psychology from. It's referring to who you are, the soul of man, who you are naturally in this world. Hence, they, they render it natural. But spiritual, pneumatikos, should have a capital S. It's not talking about a floating body somewhere. It's talking about a body empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the power source, nature, if you would, versus supernature. So think about it like this. Consider the difference. You've got a Ford Model T. It was all the rage. 20 horsepower, zero to 60 in, oh, I'm sorry, it only went up to 45 miles an hour total. <laughs> think about that. And a Tesla, a Tesla Roadster, are they the same? Well, they're both cars. But this goes zero to 60 in 1.9 seconds. It's got 250 miles per hour, 1,000 horsepower. They're both cars. 
but even the things that they have in common, like tires, have been radically redesigned and transformed. Um, that's a little picture of the power that is at work. And that's what it has in view when it says all things are subjected to Jesus. Um, I was going to say more about this, but I think, I think we just need to land it like this. Um, all things are subject to him. So we can have confidence in the end of the story. This is where everything is headed. It's guaranteed. Knowing the end of the story needs to inform how we live today. But can we be honest with ourselves? Most of us would admit it really isn't. It's not informing the decision I'm making on a daily basis. Um, here's the reality. Jesus is coming again to set all things right. He's given you the spirit as a down payment. That means you're already a Tesla. You, you just feel like a Model T. <laughs> Let that resurrection hope awake and animate you. Um, live as citizens of heaven, awaiting your returning king who's going to transform this world by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that all these things are true. I thank you that you know when that day is and that it's sooner than yesterday. Lord, as we look around at a world groaning, uh, we thank you for the promise that it is going to be released as we will be and that there's a world coming. You tell us we can't even begin to comprehend. Lord, would you give us a little glimpse, though? Would you help us to meditate on the end of Revelation, Isaiah 65, uh, all these places that give us little pictures that we would have joy and anticipation and live with abandon for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.